Welcome to Collapse Out. My name is Leo. Today, Jason and I had the opportunity to be joined by a very special guest who played bass in one of my favorite bands of all time, Fugazi. He's also played bass in bands such as Ataxia and The Black Sea. He currently plays bass in The Mesthetics, who will be on tour starting February 22nd, 2023. He also sings and plays bass in the band Koriki. He has released three solo albums. Of course, we are talking about Joe Lally. So without any further ado, we hope you enjoy our interview with Joe. We take apart everything we build Had it right here, that is gone Joe Lally, welcome and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today Sure, happy to be here So uh, how, how are you doing? You getting ready for a, a tour with the Mesthetics? Yes, we are. Um, boy, since 2019, we haven't played, you know, even two shows in a row. Wow. <laughs> so so uh, this is the first time we're going to play. This will be six shows just going up the West Coast from San Diego up to Seattle, I guess is the last show or Portland. And uh, and then we come home and in March we do nine shows um a bit of the east coast over to chicago yeah um i was looking at the dates and we're actually uh i'm actually going to be going to new york city on the march 11th which is the day before your show at kingston to right. see unwound which i didn't know about until i saw the film instrument and you know it talks about oh, unwound. Cool. and then i just quickly became a fan and so now i'm trying to uh drag my friend here who does the podcast with us uh like let's mm-hmm. let's get to kingston you know <laughs> That's great. I we were supposed to try to do shows with him, and then I don't know what happened to that. But in the in the time that we didn't get booked onto that tour, um, the thing with James Brandon Lewis came up, and I did, I never really understood why. But suddenly it seemed that one had replaced the other. But huh. it's sad because we you know those are friends of ours, and it would have been nice to do. But it figures after not doing anything for four years that. Everything happens at once. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. Um, so can you recall or just like tell us a little bit about like what got you into playing music at all? Um, definitely listening to, um, you know, punk music, the introduction of like this whole new um, music that was coming. And of course, it was coming from every possible angle. Everything fell under the same new idea of punk even though you know later 
you found that there were five genres in it or whatever. Um, maybe before that, when I was in junior high school and I was like, you know, loving Led Zeppelin or whatever, I probably really wanted to play an instrument, but it just seemed like that was something for people who were gifted beyond my comprehension. So <clears throat> that didn't really get anywhere, but, um, but yeah, by the time I'm getting into punk, I'm really starting to see that that is possible. In fact, I always kind of cite uh, a band, um, Pink Section, as I can just remember listening to them as a band and thinking they kind of, it seems like they don't really know what they're doing. But, and at the same time, I thought it was really cool music, which almost doesn't make sense because it almost sounds like I don't think they're talented, but they are talented, you know. But I, but it just seemed like they were just making it up, you know, and it was and it was working and there were two guys and there were two girls. And I think I just thought of like my close friends at the time. And I just tried to imagine, you know, the three of us in a band or something. And that's kind of where I was really thinking about it. But I have to say, musically, um, on top of that, the idea of being in a band actually like sort of picking out the bass specifically as a band that I want, uh, as an instrument that I wanted to play that probably came, you know, through listening to joy division and public image yeah. where that really settled in. But, you know, I still didn't pick up the bass for years after that till I was 19. So it's kind of hard to explain this whole thing because it just took me a long time to actually go, Okay, I'm just going to do it because a friend. We went to a Meyer Threat show. A friend I had gone to high school. We had a a shared art class, but we we're he was a year younger than me, and it was in that art class that there was a lot of like punk music being listened to, and uh, I was probably getting to know him in '80 or '81, but I had been introduced by someone else in the art class who was older than me in like '78 over the summer before that my first year of high school started. So in other words, there was this long process of like regular listening to music people brought in and, and trying to discover things. And of course no one was listening to it. And I listened, I mean, I was living in the suburbs and listening to all this shit almost alone, you know, except for the couple of friends in my art class. So yeah, it really took a long time to sort of come around. Yeah. Do you recall any of your earlier like musical influences? Did was did your parents have records around the house that you listened to obsessively or anything like that? Or um, my parents no, because they were just from a different era, and uh, you know they would they were they were like they would dance. You know, at a wedding, you'd see them dance and go like, "Oh my God, they're from this other era." Hmm. <laughs> no, <laughs> they understood that. You know. And then, so Elvis never made any sense to them, you know, that kind of, but, um, but my sister, I have, uh, I have an older sister that was nine years older than me. So she was away at college when I was a teenager at home and uh, with another brother and sister at home, but she specifically had a bunch of classic rock kind of collection that she did not take with her. So I was just doing a lot of that listening through that discovering um, mostly, you know, Zeppelin, but sort of sampling the other things and trying to figure out what 
what, you know, I liked and it's not like she had Jimi Hendrix, but it just kind of led into all the things that I could discover through those years. But I went through classic rock fairly quickly, you know, in junior high school and was really bottoming out. You know, you try all this shit and you're just like, this is not fucking happening. Right. You know, you can hang with sticks for a while and then it's like, ah, and then you move on. And uh, it was like that with a lot of bands. So, you know, the Sabbath and the Hendrix, Zeppelin, Aerosmith stayed with me, but like, I really wanted something else. So I was very much ready for punk to come along. Before that, all of my listening from like nine and 10 years old, everything was funk and soul and R&B. And I just didn't, nothing else kind of came close to that. Got very taken away by Otis Redding's uh, Monterey yeah. side of that record that's shared with Hendrix. I didn't really understand Hendrix. He was like, oh, there's a guy who, you know, was into drugs or whatever. We didn't know anything about him. But the, the Otis Redding side was fucking unbelievable. When I finally got to see that footage, I just could not believe it because I knew that record so well. Anyway, we were just talking about that. I uh, was just watching just yesterday. I was just watching that the other day. <laughs> that, is, that performance is crazy. Isn't it amazing? It's they they are just tearing through shit. And it's and it's because Otis was very aware of like, this is a rock crowd and I want you to just you know, fucking haul ass through and they do satisfaction like so fucking fast. <laughs> Lay into the songs. It's really funny. And then they'll slow down and do a ballad. And it's just, you know, he just has everyone in the palm of his hand. I mean, what a fucking performance that that show. But um yeah, so I was, you know, James Brown, the Ohio players, Parliament, Funkadelic. I was very much into Graham Central Station, which is a very weird band to listen to at this point. But Sly and the Family Stone, and uh, and I, you know, there was an AM black radio station, WOL, and I think WOK might have been FM. And I watched Soul Train every week. I mean, I was just like, it didn't make any sense. I was like an all white neighborhood. There may have been three black kids in my school. You know, I had people saying stupid shit to me if I talked about the music. It was like me and two friends. Anyone else in the school, you you know, if you talked about any of this stuff, half the people would be like, you know, N-word lover. You know, they'd, they'd say something like that. So it was, and this is outside um, of D.C.? Yes, it's in Rockville, Maryland. Okay. It was just, I don't even know how to explain it, but my best friend lived next door and he had three older brothers. And somehow it was just all this music in the house. And, his, and, you know, there were like singles hanging on the wall in the basement. You know, that's it. instead of like, you know, a pegboard for like hardware, like, you know, tools and things like there were singles. Hang, I mean, it was fucking pretty badass, you know. Yeah. So it really made me just think about music. And it was just such an enlightening sort of experience that, um well, anyway, those older brothers of my friend ended up taking us to shows that were afternoon shows that were by like a lot of Motown artists at the time. So I saw like, and I guess Philadelphia stuff. So we saw the OJs and the Spinners and the Isley Brothers and the Jackson Five. Wow. I saw them in like 1973. Awesome. Pretty weird. Yeah. To have just been able to do that. It was like so out of the ordinary. Did you have like a specific live performance that you saw that really impacted you? Like the first, one of the first times you saw 
a live show and, and it just hits you like, this is for me. I want to get into this world. Well, I have to say all of those shows when I was, you know, 10 or whatever I was when I saw that stuff, that was kind of like that. Um, but I didn't, I just didn't have anywhere to put it. You know what I mean? And then those were fairly intimate. All those shows took place in a place um, that was a small in the round theater. It couldn't have been that big because my memory of it, even when I was young, was not that it was overwhelming, like the band was overwhelmed by the room. I felt I have this memory that it was an intimate thing, mm -hmm. that they were not that far away from us. And and so and they would literally always be like slowly spinning around, you know, <laughs> really um, funky. But anyway, then that then I went to see Graham Central Station in in uh, 74 and I got back at two in the morning and it was basically like that. That's the end of that, because every other show was in the afternoon. But that that we had to go see because there was there was no afternoon to show to see. So we went and I just got so in trouble. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of the end of talking about that um, with my dad about trying to go see anything that happened at night. So I just totally put it off until I was in high school. And then I, and, and so that was years and years later. And then I'm, I'm trying to see things when I'm like, you know, 16 or whatever. And uh, therefore the jump between those two things is pretty big. And um, I probably got a chance to see some arena show, you know, where someone was like, Hey, you know, we have tickets to, you know, see rush or something, you know, mm -hmm. but you're so far away that it's, it's not having that kind of impact at all. Sure. And, then, and then suddenly seeing things that are up close at, you know, it was probably the first shows I was seeing were probably local bands of the nine thirty club. Cause we would go just see local people playing and we would just go to hear the DJs play music because all that music was new and we would just like get stoned and dance or whatever. And, um, and then it was the bands that we wanted to see. And so I saw in 1979, I saw the, um, I'm, it's getting so far away now that I'm literally getting foggy about the first shows that I see. <laughs> the first shows that I see are the B-52s. And then after that, I think Devo. And then the next thing is like 1980, The Clash. So 79, we see the B-52s at this old movie theater that's a big movie theater, and everyone's just packed in the front, in front of the seats, like where the seats stop is an open area, and that's where the whole audience is packed. And they are just fucking dancing and, and playing so hard that it was pretty intense, and I got like too close to the crowd, and I got sort of sucked into it, and I couldn't touch the ground. It freaked the shit out of me. You know, the B-52s show, which at this point almost seems like some kind of cartoon thing that's, you know, silly. But I have to say they were just fucking intense band, man. Ricky Wilson, punk, actually. Yeah, the B-52s are awesome. Yeah. Ricky Wilson did not really move from where he was standing and a puddle <laughs> of sweat developed around him. I mean, he just, what they were so fucking intense, man. Whatever you want to say about their music, they were going for it so hardcore that it was, they were such a great band to see. So that, you know, that was definitely each of these shows 
were totally, um, you know, an impact on my brain, you know, to see that stuff. So then going down to see Devo in Baltimore, there was another theater that was also in the round, but it was taped off because they probably didn't think they would sell that much. This is just the first record has come out. Mm -hmm. So they tape off half the place and the stage is stationary and they just play to half the room. And man, that was just like seeing people from another fucking planet. It was just insane the way they acted and played. And I, I mean, I won't go into the whole show, but it was pretty mind blowing. Um, that was a whole band doing that. But man, I saw Iggy pop in 1980 and that was like the soldier tour. And uh, that was like seeing an alien, you know, that was just like nothing short of that. I just didn't even under, it took me years to process that show. I just didn't understand what the fuck happened. Like it was, you know, it was nothing short of like shamanic <laughs> religious. Yeah. It, it, it just was like, that's his thing. I mean, after a while, you know, looking back on it, you can kind of understand that that was what he was doing. He was able to like take the energy of a band in that kind of, you know, audience situation, but you didn't, you didn't, there was this real connecting experience going on with him that he communicated something to you that again, just took a long time to process, but yeah, all those shows were kind of mind-boggling to uh, to get through. See, you know, seeing I guess the Bad Brains played with the Obsessed, I think in 1980, because I went to see the Bad Brains in 1979 when they were playing a squat, um, a house that was used to, to have shows and that they lived in and stuff, um, Madam's Organ. But uh, they didn't perform that night. We went down there and they didn't play. And so I still, I didn't understand about an entire scene because they didn't play that night. Yeah. <laughs> like if they would have played, I would have, I would have been affected in, on such a level that I've had to discover more about what was going on in the local hardcore scene. But as it was, it took me a while to actually understand that that was there. It might've been 1980. I don't know. I should look up that show with the obsessed because when the bad brains finally, the obsessed opened for the bad brains, it was, Pretty, you know, seeing the bad brains was kind of like, I mean, it's still very easy to say that they were the best band I've ever seen, you know, sure. yeah. nothing comes close to all the things that you can sort of check off on your <laughs> checklist of the shit that is never going to happen again kind right. of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> so is going to those shows, is that, is that sort of what like introduced you to the, the DC scene and discord records eventually? Yeah, again, it was really, it was such a slow process for me because I'm coming from Rockville, Maryland, which is only like, you know, 20 minutes drive away. But it's like, it was like I had, I was from another country because to find out about anything was, you know, pretty difficult. There were, there were even kids in my art class that were talking about an outdoor show that I never understood that Fugazi ended up playing Fort Reno, like, you know, over and over, over the years. But when I was still in high school, I kind of couldn't get there anyway. But I, you know, they, I remember these kids telling me about that show and I just, they were like, you love this because it's all these, you know, local punk things are happening. But I, I missed all that shit. And I was just, I was missing all kinds of things. I missed, you know, a great Bad Brains show at the, at the Bayou that I should have seen. And then they, 
the, the news channel, local news channel was there and it end, a bit of it ended up on TV, you know, on the news talking about that scene and uh, Black Flag too ended up on a TV thing like them just talking about this punk movement, you know, but um, yeah, it was, it really took some, it took some time for me to understand that. And it, and I really feel like whenever it was that the dead Kennedys, it might've been 81 that the dead Kennedys played, or I could be wrong with half Japanese at the nine thirty club. And I just remember thinking this many people, you know, are doing this thing, but I don't know when, cause they were all coming on the stage. It was like nonstop. Everyone just kept, jumping off the stage like over and over and over so much so that I was, you know, not very big. So I crawled onto the stage and kid around all the, all the coats were piled on the stage and right next to Klaus's base, like practically, but I was hiding under the coats, like just kind of watching everything. But I was <clears throat> kind of like, man, this is a lot of fucking people listening to this shit. And it's, but I don't, I don't, you know, I saw the teen idols with the cramps in 1980 oh, and I didn't really get it that in fact, when the teen idols played, I didn't really pay attention to them. Cause I was like, isn't that the thing that's already gone from England? Mm -hmm. Like I just thought about it, like, you know, the sex pistols and because Leiden had gone from the sex pistols to the, to public image, I was like, that thing is over and you move into the new. And I looked at them and I just didn't get it. I that, I mean, I'm just trying to explain like how fucking out of it I was or just, coming at it from my weird, you know, experience. So sure. yeah, it was really weird, but it may have been right after or no, I was still in high school when I discovered that discord existed. So I, I don't know how I figured, you know, which part of that out um, and going to a skate ramp that was out in uh, Annandale, which they've since like, there's a little movie that's about that ramp. Um, but I would see people, you know, Ian would be there and other people in bands um, would be there and all these guys skating and a friend of mine skated. So we'd go out there. And and so then you'd hear, you know, you get you'd understand more about shows. But somewhere along the way, I just was like, oh, my God, all those kids that I'm seeing at shows, they're actually in bands and they're putting out their own music. Like that was pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Wow. Um, DIY. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, um, and that's what I think still goes on today, which is pretty wonderful about that idea of hardcore as much as you might say it's a music that doesn't change or do too much. It is like it serves its purpose. People network and understand this whole thing about traveling and playing and communicating with other people who do the same thing. Yeah. And it still does link up with the skate community, too, which is sick, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we just well, we really had cool. a show with the skate park and whatever. Yep, yep. Get Sorry, I wasn't gonna talk. You know <laughs> what I mean? That's why I'm off camera, and I'm not saying much. I'm just trying to let Leo do most of it, so we don't talk it's too all much. Good. But all right. <laughs> so, in 1986, you roaded you roaded for Beefeater. Is that right? Yes. Um, how did that all transpire? So that was after like you know a bunch of attempts to start bands with people where I I um. You know, I first tried to sing and then I tried playing bass and then I actually tried playing drums and, you know, I couldn't really do anything. But um, I had kind of got I, I had a decent job for like 86 was 
82 to 86, I worked for a government contractor for NASA at Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. <laughs> they didn't launch rockets there, but it was a big, you know, computer place, which my dad had worked at. And, and basically just because I had was out of high school and I was totally pathetic because I was basically a drug addict, he just kind of gave me this um, um whatever you call them to get a job, which obviously I haven't tried to do for quite a while, but, um, <laughs> I application. So I filled out, he was like, I can't do anything for you about this, but because I shaved my head because I was into hardcore, I went and put in this application with like a nice shirt and tie on and my shaved head. And I, and it turned out the guy who hired me was an ex Marine. It's the only reason I got the job because I had no experience of anything. But I, you know, I, I took care of uh, laser printers, you know, um, in the end, that was, a, that was something. But my first job was actually in a, a tape storage facility, which is basically an analog and digital tape library, just a place that housed the information, which now could probably fit on a desktop, but was kept in a warehouse far from the location of the space flight center that just was a, you know, storage facility. So they would drive in trucks. They would drive tapes. People requested like, that sounds insane. Yeah. Right. Yes, it does. You want to look <laughs> at something on the computer, you had to fucking order something and maybe you'd look at it next week or whatever, you know, what the hell? It's a fucking so, film strip. <laughs> it's really, really hard to imagine how hard that must've been to get anything done. My God, they put a, Man on the moon, you know, so <laughs> it's really hard to believe. But anyway, um, I did that for a couple of years and I, I had an accident where I cut my hand to the bone, which stopped me playing bass. And that was just, that was just healing as I went on tour with Beefeater. It was just getting to where I could sort of play again. But I, of course, wasn't doing any of that with them. But um, that got me on on bass at NASA. And so I had like a year or two on bass and uh so yeah, my, so actually, yeah, my finger had gotten better and then started to play. I probably went for a long time without playing. That's why, but, um, but I just really needed to get away. I knew that I was, I didn't care about the job. I knew that I was not, um, being kind to myself. So I thought, you know, probably get rid of this job, probably do me a lot of good, but I also needed to like sort of rearrange people I was hanging around with and shit and just kind of look at things differently. And, and so going down to seeing the shows of like rights of spring and V feeder and stuff, I had always gone down to shows alone anyway. So it was like the music just started to like speak to me in a way that made me think about what I was going to do. And basically I was like, I should quit this job. And luckily I knew Fred Smith because he had gone to see the obsessed who I was close with and lived in a group house with at a certain point. And, um, Fred was a guitar player for beef eater and he was basically got the band to take me along as their roadie and, you know, save my life because I really needed that change. And that was it. I cut all this shit off, no job, no place to live and got in a van with them. And two months we went across the States in the summer of 86, which is a hard time to go on tour with, you know, a punk band because people are away at school. It's not the time to book shows. And so not as many people 
that could have been at those shows was there. And so I really thought if people don't like them, I will never be in a band. So I might as well just face up to shit and like, you know, be a roadie. And uh, I probably would have done that if circumstances hadn't just allowed another thing to happen. And that tour started and ended at Discord House because the singer Tomas lived there. And that's how I met Ian and spoke to him before the tour a little bit, but after the tour more where uh, Tomas and Ian and I um, had gone out to lunch and talk about the tour. And a week later, he asked if I wanted to play bass with him. That's crazy. Wow. Um, did the, the, so when Fugazi was, was like forming, were there any ever like working title of uh, working names besides Fugazi? I know Ian came up with the name because he was reading a, a the book Nam. Um, yeah, there was, there was uh, quite, there was 80, so it was like fall of 86 to September of 87 <clears throat> that we're trying to figure out a lot of shit. And then we lose Colin Sears, I maybe even before the end of the year. And we're basically from there just looking for a drummer. And that goes on for quite a while. We probably don't start playing steadily with Brendan until the summer. And um, Happy Go Licky might still be a band, but they were a band when we first played with Brendan, but he just kind of dropped in and played with us, but it was so good. We were kind of like no other drummer could sort of measure up. So we just kept looking and looking and then happy go lucky disp disbanded. So it just happened. And now I forgot what you asked me. That's okay. It, it kind of, it's all segueing fine. Um, I, I wanted to, to stop in and mention something about happy go lucky as well. Cause I know the, the one recording that is available was mm -hmm. just sort of like a, a live recording and it doesn't really, I, I'm, I can only imagine it doesn't really match the same energy and intensity of what it would have been live. And yeah, definitely a band that I would love to be a, a go back in time and like see because I know there's yeah, a few shows. I tell you, I, w I wish they, I wish they could have gotten to the studio and uh, managed to just make that thing happen in some form in the studio because what a great band that was! I loved that band. The idea that I ended up in a band with two of the guys makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, I, I, but I loved seeing them, and I had come back from the Beefeater tour. And just kept using the beef beef eater van was kind of like kind of at my disposal to drive happy go licky sometimes. So I would I would help move their equipment to the show and and so it was yeah, just seeing those shows, that was incredible. There I can't even explain that band. They were I don't know that they knew or talked too much about what they were doing. They just got together and did what they did and rehearsals and then they were the songs and then they went and did the songs live and they're just shit was just happening like i don't think they talked to no one was i don't know that anyone wrote any lyrics down i think they were just singing what they were singing and it's completely insane man it's like it's a what a great band they were yeah it sounded like a lot of improv uh just done at a very intense energy yeah there's and they knew you know they're they had this, that was the third band that group of people were doing together. So by then, I guess they were just fucking going for it and they, they didn't have to talk about it too much. And, uh, and it was all, I love that band. I thought they were great.
Um, so what were the first like few get togethers with uh, Fugazi? Like when you guys would get together musically, um, when, when like you noticed things started to take shape, um, like I said, there was a whole year okay. where we're playing ideas that end up being in the first group of Fugazi songs, but we don't have a name and we're playing with Colin Sears. Ian is adjusting to sing and play guitar and I'm really learning to like play bass in a band. I mean, I had done a couple of bands that each played two shows, you know, in 19, like 83 you know, maybe 84 was the last time that happened. And then I, you know, I didn't ever get anything going again after that. So, you know, figuring out, I mean, I, I wasn't just learning Ian's ideas. Like he had waiting room pretty much as an idea and he had played it for other people who just dismissed it. And I, I was just like, well, it's a good song. So I, learned how to play it. And then I like to think that, you know, some part of me is also why it sounds the way it does, but, but it's, a, I always tell people that's, you know, I know that's what you want to talk about, but I, just so you know, I didn't write that, <laughs> you know, it's okay to be known for it. It's, it's a good song, but um, it, it was really, in other words, I was also responding to ideas Ian had. So he'd have some f more finished ideas but then like, you know, part A kind of ideas. And then I, I would either write a part B or I could at least write the baseline to the part A, you know, and then we'd kind of get going. But we were just trying to figure out what we were. And Ian responded to what I did pretty well. And I, I have no idea why that we just, we just, I didn't really have any thought before ever sitting down and talking to Ian that we could ever make any music together never crossed my mind seeing him play no offense never made me think it would be great to do a band with ian it just <laughs> never equated sure. it, never, it never i don't know why it never made sense that it could happen and then we start playing together and we just seemed to understand what we were doing together and so we just we started to write so we kind of throw those things back and forth and then we had by the time brennan was really sitting you know, sitting in with us or had committed, we kind of had a group of songs that we were after. And some of those kind of fell by the side, but, you know, um, a bunch of them kept going and, and made it onto the first EP. And that was all the writing basically that took place before Guy, you know, started to mess with us, which was by the second show, Guy was like singing almost off stage. You know, he was right. just adding vocals and then by the third show is is like on stage with us. And then I think we went out of town right away. We went down to, uh, I want to say to play the Cat's Cradle, although I don't know, but we played with, I think, Max Band in uh, Chapel Hill. And, um, you know, we and, and stayed with him. And we, we went out and did that thing. And then, you know, Guy was already like, I mean, by like I said, it was, that was pretty, that was a couple of months into actually, you know, playing with Brendan and starting as Fugazi. So it didn't take that long. And Guy was doing stuff. It's just weird that he stayed in the band so long being a backup singer <laughs> and then actually starting to sing lead on songs, but just having not picked up the guitar. There was a tour of America and a tour of Europe that way. And it just seems incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah. 
but we did that. And so those through the second EP and then almost became a new band for repeater. Sure. Because he was playing guitar. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've, I've heard interviews with Geese talking about how he preferred some of like the, like the demo versions of songs that ended up making it onto the instrument soundtrack uh, over mm -hmm. the recorded version that's on the album. Um, yeah. Do you, do you have any of those feelings about any of the songs off of oh, instrument? Yeah. I, I remember, I remember feeling very much that, I mean, everyone in the band, I think was capable of producing it someone in the studio ian had obviously done it a bunch of times but brennan and gear were just so intense about music and understood the equipment the more time we spent with don that by the time we do steady diet um we kind of shoved brennan to go like do your drums and then the next person will go but see i don't have any real and my ears my ears were shot when we started basically i had already sat in a lot of like bedrooms or basements with just loud as shit music from a band playing. I hear you, dude. <laughs> with my friend who was a drummer from when I was in high school to my, my in junior high school, actually. And then, and then the obsessed who I, you know, who had earplugs back then. I just had my fucking brains blown out for a long time. <laughs> I, you know, so by the time we're in the band, I'm kind of like, okay, we, you know, we tried, listening through this song and adjusting something three times, I can't even fucking hear what the difference is anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I didn't like go for a walk, but I just didn't understand what I could do for it. And I, and I started to realize later, much later after the band, I, I realized, Oh, I just need all of those things set before you turn the tape before the tape rolls. Right. And it's basically getting basic sounds, volume adjustment done. <laughs> you know that's that's where i'm at it's just of course you still need to be you know good at what you're doing to do that and an engineer just did that with the aesthetics and james brandon lewis for a record that won't come out till next year probably but it's two you know two days of recording he he built the sound around james's sax sound that thing has not been mixed and it sounds done cool. yeah i can't wait for that that's the way you know it's my, that's my vision. It doesn't mean that I can do it. It just means that I need a genius to do it for me. <laughs> but if you get that down, you can, you can make things happen. And it's not about all the overdose, or at least I never got to that. Anyway, back to Fugazi and the fact that we were doing those things in the studio from the point of steady diet and then not feeling totally satisfied with it. And then kind of going back to Ted nicely or actually trying out Steve Albini and then going back to Ted nicely. All of that happening through, you know, for in on the kill taker, it, it, I, I think it was, it became more and more clear to me as we got our own equipment and stuff is just, this is the way we should do all this stuff is interesting because no, we're not in a real studio. There is no clock ticking for the time. There's no feeling about when it's done. And they're, we're so loose about it that it's just experimental and interesting. And we have our own equipment. So when we go up to do that stuff at the house, so literally the stuff that ends up being on the soundtrack, we go up to a house in Connecticut and we're just recording in there. It's just a room that has a piano in it, but is surrounded by books, bookshelves. It's just this little country house and it's a perfect place to record. You wake up and that's what you're doing, you know? So my feeling was we have our own, we should be doing it. So, you know, no one, 
what's going to listen to me? Because what was, I didn't even know how to run the equipment. So there's no reason everyone would have said, Oh, you know, Joe is right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's no reason that should have happened anyway, but I definitely felt it back then because I felt like this is the shit that is, can be interesting because we're experimental with it. But because, you know, that was us controlling the studio. Cause by then to me, it was clear they had control of the equipment and therefore the studio and recording situation. It just didn't come about until, you know, going through, in other words, probably playing with our own equipment made, made, you know, red medicine and end hits the way they were more experimental sounding and us making studio albums as studio albums. And then the live version was the live version. Right. You know, but, the, but it took that we you know, the, I think there was just, I don't know, there, there was resistance to do it. So I'm, I'm glad at least in hindsight, there's, there's agreement on how that would have been a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> you started Tolada Records, right? Your own record label? How yeah. Did, how did that all come to be? That was really because Brendan's um, fiance at the time was, had gone to um, Seattle to study to be a midwife. And Brendan had gone out there to spend some time with her. He had family there anyway. And there was a bunch of friends, musician friends up there. So he, you know, when Fugazi had downtime, it actually got extended a little more than it might have because he was going to go visit her there. And he studied, you know, he, he studied theory while he was there. He like got a keyboard and, and did some like investigation. And instead of me trying to figure out what the fuck I was doing with my instrument, which I knew nothing about, I was like entertaining myself by going like, I should help people put out a single or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I did for my friends, Stinky Lizaveta. I put out a single, but what I started to, and I did that for sevens to uh, Mark and Bobby Sullivan. But I, I noticed that anyone who's in a big band, they would just put out their own single. Like that's what somebody would do anyway. Right. So I was like, Oh, I'm not really able to help anyone. They just do it themselves. Sure. It's not that big a deal, but it was the process of it was just fun. And it kept me busy with something to do. And then, uh, and then why no, moved back to the DC area from living in LA in 96. And that's what led to like, I did a shine single and then they, um, somebody asked them not to use the name shine and then they became spirit caravan. And so then I felt like I had this objective, like I've got to help, you know, Wino get his music out. Cause he had, he had kind of bottomed out in LA with various substances and uh, come back. And I just wanted to give him a hand. So like that, that was just a nice, 
thing to be able to do while he was getting his life together. And he, you know, he had met someone and then they ended up having a kid and, and it was all just kind of like something to do for a while. But then once I, the, the end of the label was really that we were going to, when the band stopped, when Fugazi stopped playing, I really needed to get out of DC. It just, it kind of made me insane basically. So I, I, um, uh, my partner is not from here and we wanted to go find like sort of a neutral city for the both of us. So we just moved and there was no way I was carrying a bunch of fucking records with me. So that didn't happen. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with the, the Black Sea or uh, Decahedron? I'm probably saying that. Very yeah. Wrong. Decahedron was that, I mean, again, that was like this weird Although I instigated the downtime, it was the way the band reacted when somebody had a kid. So we had our daughter in uh, 2001, and basically it, the band was just like, let Joe have his child, you know, and they just like, no one would come near me. So <laughs> Shelby would come over the house and play guitar with me. And and that was that. It's That's all there was to it. It was like, well, someone will play music with me. So I just started writing and Lydia would be there making, you know, noise while we were trying to play some music together, she'd just start yelling or something. And it was just like, didn't bother him at all. And we just did that. So I, I, it wasn't really like something that I tried real hard to do. It just, I, I had somebody to play some music with and it just kept leading to like, Oh, I can go over their house and practice. Fugazi was doing nothing. So I just, it just turned into that, but I didn't ever have a idea that I would go on tour with them or anything like that. You know what I mean? It was just, I was happy to give them a hand. And when it got to that point, I was like, you should find a bass player to, to, to go do this stuff. And they found somebody and they did what they wanted to do. But yeah, so it was just like a project to work on. It just, it was just nice that it became a record, you know, yeah. we stay away from our musician friends that have kids too. <laughs> so we get it. We have a bass player that has a kid. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're icky. <laughs> um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Ataxia project and how that formed? Yeah, again, you know, it was like, so now we're like, we move out, we live to L, we live in LA, you know, so that's where we moved in, in uh, 2000. What part of LA, if you don't mind me asking? Three or something like that. Um, we lived, uh, we lived at the apartments where the Go-Go's fountain picture was taken. Oh, okay that picture on the cover of the Go-Go's record is the, it's the Fountain View Apartments at the corner of Los Feliz and Riverside. Okay. And uh, right next to the five. Yep. I, I grew up in Southern California, so. And um, we are living there just kind of like because my wife had some friends there, so we did have like people she knew better than people that I knew were around. And, and so it was all really nice. And we could actually do nice things with Lydia when she was a baby. We could, um, there were places we could walk to, which you're not supposed to be able to do in LA, but we were across the street basically from a miniature train and a pony ride, you know, yeah. right there. Like Griffith, Griffith Park. Park. Yeah. Yep. It's just a mate. We could literally walk over there and do that. It was, so there was just kind of cool things around. Anyway, she started like, you know, preschool there. And, um, and I would have conversations with uh, John on the phone 
about music because that's what my relationship with John was. And now that I was in the same town as him, we could at least just kind of get on the phone. But um, we just started talking about music and it, eventually it, after, a, a, I don't know how long of that, he was just like, Hey, you know, we're, Josh and I work on a bunch of my solo music together and we want to play a live show Would you know, how would you feel about being the bass player? So he gave me a bunch of their music and then I was to choose nine songs, but I was living in a one bedroom apartment, you know, with my child. So it was pretty insane actually to get any time to try and figure it out. And I don't do that. I don't figure out other people's music by listening to tapes. Right. That never presented itself in the 15 years that I was with Fugazi. Okay. <laughs> so I didn't get any better at it, you know, and before that I never learned to play off of records. I learned to play by writing music with people. Right. That's, it's just the way that I learned how to play. I hear you. I've, you know, playing guitar and, and as a teenager, I've had friends who were like just playing along to records and stuff. And I, it was something I could never do. I can't, I don't know how to like jam. Like people, <laughs> it's not okay. Yeah. I, don't tr- <laughs> I also don't trust myself that the note is right. Right. I play a note and go like, is it that note? Is it, could it be this note? No one's looking <laughs> at me funny. So. <laughs> I have no idea. So like, anyway, I didn't, I didn't develop that skill. And then I'm sitting there and I go, so I go to the practice to go over the songs with them. And now the show is about um, maybe just over a week away. Like it's Monday and the show is going to be the following Monday or something, or maybe, maybe we have three more days. It's about 10 days away, the show. And I go over to their house and uh, I, there's not one song that I played correctly. And uh, they're being very kind about it. But then they, they also go like, you know, there's no, there's no keyboards that should be on these songs. We have to get a fourth person. And so then they started to go like, Hmm. And then John said, you know, I also, with the Chili Peppers, we write music and we go out and play it. And with you, that's what I'm asking you to do. Maybe we should just be doing music that we're doing together and go play that. Right. That we write together, you know, and it hasn't been recorded, you know, to tour as an album and all that stuff. So um, I said, well, that's really nice of you because that would be easier for me to do. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Accommodating your needs. So we basically... I had this idea of what my solo music would be like. And before I left DC, I had like eight or nine songs of what would eventually become my first solo record um, that I just sort of demoed in the basement of discord before I left town. So this idea of this music, which I was still very hesitant to like, try to get together with anyone um, was in my mind. So I just said, well, you know, it would be nice to just, if you, you like what I do, what we what I would like to explore is that I do a bass line and you guys do changes over it and you make it sound like the song is changing. And basically, and they were just like, oh, yeah, let's do that. Because they, they wanted, it turned out they were putting out an album every month for like a year for record collection, Josh and, and John. So they, this is Josh Klinghoffer. So John and Josh are just like, we need an assignment. That's the way they were looking at it. Mm, right. So they just do it. Now they, I didn't know this thing about the record company thing they were doing because we were just doing this show. So we, 
change the direction of that practice and we just start to play together. And I didn't know John turned on his phone to record it. <laughs> so I actually come up with a baseline and Josh starts playing drums and we just fall into doing this thing. And it turns out to be dust, the song dust. And John just starts like, John just plays. And he literally decides that 10 minutes and turns off the tape you know, the recording, the phone. <laughs> I still can't, I still can't think no. like a modern human being, but then he, then I don't know that we did anything else that day, but the next day, like we might not have gotten together the next day, but two, two days later when we get together, before we play another song, John plays back what he's done with that song and it has lyrics on it. Wow. So he's organized the way the song will go and he understands what his lyrics are. So then he plays this. So then we play that as a thing and he sings on it or whatever. So then we do it again. And I basically just start thinking, you know, probably far too Joy Division public image like and and just am going like, oh, OK, this kind of a thing. Plus, I this is going to be one of like 10 songs I have to remember, like right. in a week. <laughs> so yeah. I'm keeping them really fucking simple, you know? And but anyway, that's what happens. We do two songs. We get together again. He's got lyrics for those two songs. We write two songs. We, he's got lyrics the next time we get together. And then we have 10 songs. And then it's the weekend before we're going to do the shows on a Monday. The show is on a Monday. And then it becomes two shows. It gets sold out. They book another show. But first, it's just there's a show on Monday, and the week that's coming up to that weekend, John says, what do you think about going in the studio to record this stuff? And I'm like, you know, if that's what you want to do, like, yeah. sure, you know. I ju it just, for me, it was this project that was going to happen once. So, in a sense, should I have written better bass lines? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, should I have thought about them differently? I was literally trying to scope, you know, sculpt something I was going to be able to remember and right. execute. So that's a different than let's put this down on record forever, you know? Absolutely. So, totally weird. So I don't know what I think of that stuff, but when I listen back, I just go like, you know, this is interesting. And it's moving along a concept that was in my mind at the time. Because at, at that time, I felt like if you put me together with really good musicians, I think I can come up with some interesting music. Well, both of those so, records, I mean, they were done in one session, correct? Like automatic writing one and two. Yeah, because it's because it was the one session that produced the 10 songs <laughs> we had. Yeah. And then it turned out five were enough to cover a record because he literally gave himself that huge chunk of time to understand what a song was and to try and sculpt it into something. So he, they just ended up being long songs.
you. Yeah, I, I think both those uh, recordings are great. And I think, you know, just a great snapshot of just something that happened, you know. Um, cool. Yeah, I really dig, dig those records. Um, so at this point, you've already started working on a little bit of your solo stuff. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about each of your solo albums? Maybe just like where you're at in your own headspace um, during those three records? Yeah, the first, I mean, the first two are more similar, but the first one was uh, like reaching farther um, probably than necessary. And so the second one just was like, okay, let's just keep it at like bass vocals and, and a drum beat. And so there isn't, a t but, but it did, but even that one did change. And I, and I had people I had gone out and experimented with and found some really good guys who had studied jazz to play drums and keyboard and accompany me on the second record. But that first record was really just trying to understand can that concept Again, this is before the ataxia stuff, but that idea was if a vocal line and a bass line are solid, then the two other musicians would come in, drums and guitar or drums and somebody, and they could improvise over what I'm laying down. So can I write essentially a skeleton that is strong enough to support the way people flesh it out and be who they are as musicians. And that really invites the other people in. So by the time I come back from living in LA and Portland, come back to DC, I go in and record that, spend way too much time on it. I can't fucking sing. And I should have like figured out how to sing first, <laughs> but I, I, you know, and completely, uh, have no confidence as a singer. And so that doesn't help. And so there's a lot of struggling there. So, there, but, there, but the things that we do when we go in, like I'll say, oh, let's do this song. Let's have Guy and Eddie from Happy Go Licky on guitar. And let's have uh, Jerry will play drums. And then we would just go in and I'd show them the song and they'd react to it. And I'd be like, that's definitely not the way I hear the song. But that works because that's the way they hear the song. And so they have fleshed it out. And so what I heard is like sort of a, jazzier maybe jungle rhythm they heard as like a it sounds very t-rex you know mm. very straightforward so um almost pay is just kind of in this pace that i never intended on playing that way again and i have played that because some of some of the people i've gotten together with have played with me just because they heard the music so it's very hard to like if they weren't going to improvise they had to hold on to something so it has occurred that way but that was the thing is about partially about me just also opening up to what their interpretation was going to be. So some of those songs are literally just me bass. It's just vocal and bass. One song is just vocal. Uh, one is me and uh, vocal bass. And then Danny Frankel is sitting on the floor at discord house and playing uh, shit that he pulled together in the house, including <laughs> the mailbox that sits on the front porch and a bowl in the kitchen. He just went through the kitchen and the shit in the house and just was right. like, I can make sounds and just fucking hitting, you know, cause Danny's a genius. The recording wasn't exactly right. Ian was in the other room monitoring. And so was, there was this issue about the volume of what we could play. And so it ended up being so low. It was kind of whack, but um, <laughs> 
I, I always, 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 and I really would like to record with Danny someday. And I've always wanted to play with him live. And I've just never been able to do any of that. But he is fucking awesome. I love Danny Frankel. Anyway, um, that that is what was kind of going on with the concept of those records. Also, because I knew that we weren't necessarily going to stay in D.C. And that the idea would be, if I'm going to be moving around or just living someplace where I don't have a band, it has to be changing. The lineup has to be able to change around this. So that was the concept. And then it took different forms through the three records. But the third, the third record, by then I, I was kind of in, in uh, Italy and uh, playing with, uh, I had gotten two people I was playing regularly with a bit so I, I just tried to make them do it actually i just started to play with elisa playing guitar and was kind of convincing her just like do, just do this you know and there were some things that she really wasn't ready to do yet and so i i play guitar on a bit but um that's how that happened the the second record what i'm leaving out is i had gone on tour with a band capillary action who were nice enough to just you know get in the van with them and they take me on tour so uh, that guy, John, was up for it because, I mean, it was because something else was booked and I was supposed to be playing with an Italian band, Zoo, touring in America with Capillary Action. And then Zoo canceled on the tour. So John calls me up and is like, will you do this tour without them and we can be your backing band? And so I go up the day before the tour starts. That night we practice and the next day we begin the tour. Plenty of time. Plenty of time to get the songs down. <laughs> so basically all I figured out was, and so then I had drums, guitar, keyboard, trombone accompaniment. Of course, trombone. So I was kind of <laughs> like, I was like, whoa, okay. So after playing the first night or two, I was like, okay. You guys play on this song. You guys play on that song. You two play on this. You four play. Everyone plays on this song. I just started distributing. I realized like, oh shit, everyone's going to play all the time on every song <laughs> until I start telling them not to. Yeah. Tell that trombone so, to chill out for a second. <laughs> it was pretty, it was pretty fucking amazing though, because they're all, they're all guys who studied at Oberlin and studied jazz, except for the guy who played guitar and sang and led the band, John. Oh. <laughs> so it was kind of badass because they were all just like, you know, winging it with his thing. So anyway, they were a cool band. And I came back from that tour where like, you know, especially a song like Pieces of String, Sam, the keyboard player, would sit down every night and go like, let's try that one again. And so me and him and Ricardo would just fuck with that one. And he would. And so he was just kind of ready to do that. And he just brought like a distortion pedal and a keyboard and came and him and Ricardo in the basement of discord, we recorded our tracks together and all that shit is fantastic because they had heard some of that stuff, but he was just doing whatever songs I put him on and he would do a great job. And I mean, they, they solidified that concept to me, boy, if I can get fucking jazz players, you know, who'll do if you know, if you can afford to pay them, <laughs> obviously I couldn't. So I didn't have them all the time, but um, the people I did go out and play with and do that who who want to improvise because the bottom line for those people is, you know, they don't want to know how the song goes. That's that's what I realized. Right. So it, it occurred to me eventually. I was like, you know, I'm putting out the set list, but 
unless I'm correct me if I'm wrong, you don't want to know how the songs go, do you? And yeah, it was. They were like, you're you're on to me. So you live in Italy for a little while. Uh, when you were there, did you discover any other bands or musicians? I know I think you probably worked with some of them on your solo stuff, maybe. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get as much of you know. I didn't have total control of my life. My daughter is going through all of her elementary school at that time. We lived for the eight years of like first grade to eighth grade, um, and you know, and she was she's she's Italian. You know, um, mm. she spoke. Mm. English with me only. So that just kept me from learning Italian because <laughs> I had to always speak English. That was like, that's the deal when you're in a, a couple and the child's going to be bilingual, no matter where you go, I speak English and Tony speaks Italian. So that's the way in America, that's the way in Italy. Um, then I, you know, I, I understood the people I would love to play with, but it was just hard to try to get, that together and happened, but a couple of times did happen. And a drummer that I played with early on, uh, that Massimo Pupillo from Zoo, the band Zoo, Z-U, um, hooked me up with this drummer, Joelle Pagliaccia. And he he hooked up with me at the, just before we moved back to the States and was just kind of like, come on, we got to do a tour before you go. And since then, he keeps asking me to come back, but I'm like, I just, I can't leave for fucking two weeks and come home with, you know, barely anything. Right. Like I just, I just can't do that, but I would be happy to do that shit because he is a great drummer, but he also has connection to fantastic guitar player, this guy, Manlio Maresca and Manlio is just a shit hot jazz guitar player. So like that's the, the tour we did at the end. And this guy, um, Claudio played, um, uh, played bass sometimes because I was trying to give him something to do and to tour with us. And he had, I think he had the vehicle or something and like all these things where he played uh synthesizer that he had with us. So it was just like, you know, things were going to happen and we were just going to figure them out as we went along. But anyway, Monlio, just such a great guitar player. And he'd be sitting, you know, we'd be waiting to go on stage and Joelle would be like, play some monk and he would fucking do Thelonious monk songs on guitar. Wow. I mean, I've just never seen anyone do that shit. And he's just out of his head. He has a band called, um, Neo N E O. And, uh, he does different projects and does tons of solo shit, but you look up his shit and he is, he's fucking out there. But, uh, but I would love to go back and do that, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I have to pay the bills, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what brought you back from from Italy to to the states? 
uh, getting a job, you know. <laughs> they didn't have money, yeah, like you just said. Got to pay them mills. <laughs> they didn't need a bass player over there, you know. Yeah. They, I mean, I could have joined a band that I didn't like and got paid, you know. I could have used my, like, oh, I was in Fugazi, like, you know. Mm. I probably could have found my way into some major sort of touring band if I worked at it hard enough. I mean, not my interest at all. So was I even, you know, trying to do that at all? No, but I did have friends who booked bands and I did have some connections that pointed me in that. And I could kind of see, like, I think that came up for, you know, once like, Oh, you know, this band needs a bass player. And I actually thought about it for a second. And I was like, I won't like doing music if I do something Mm, like that. It really kind of be a job. Yeah. Not something I could do. So I had to sort of bite the bullet and just come home. But um, but it's been good, you know, to be to be back and kind of get uh, a certain amount of control over things again. So that's good, you know. But we we took care of uh, Antonia's mom while we were there, and you know, there was a there was a um, a job to do while we were there. Much um, not an ordinary job, but there was something that needed to be done. So. Right, right. so our purpose there sure and i'm happy to go back but (laughs) so in 2016 the aesthetics form um how did that come together well i came you know when i didn't play for the last three years in italy i just felt like i needed to be there as lydia was getting older and and we're living with antonia's mom and i just won't go into that yeah but uh, um it just came, I just felt like I should be there. I was feeling like an absent father, basically, and husband. So I was there for those three years, and I just started to mess around with music on my own. So I tried to understand what was in on my mind. And I made these super repetitive bass lines, and I knew guys who could really play. And I had, like, Monleo come over and play, just plug in and play to my, you know, in, into my, like, logic, you know, on my laptop. And I had this other guy, um, Mike Cooper, who is an, um, from England, but had been living in Italy for ages and now lives in Spain. But he's like, you know, I, I don't know how old he is now. He's like turning 80 or some shit. He's, he was like 73 when we were playing together. And we did this one show and it was like the best shows, just me and him, because he is like the ultimate improviser and he is playing a... Uh, lap steel guitar that's what he plays and he does all kinds of shit on his own but he he just knows how to react to what i'm doing you know i mean he is an improviser so it was just like heaven um that that i wished you know i could repeat but we've been so far away from each other and i can't barely pay for him to like come over here and do anything that i couldn't i tried to get a university here to like have him as uh, doing a master class kind of thing, oh, you know, right. class because basically Mike Cooper supposedly turned down the stones in like 1960, you know, whatever the fuck it was mm. because they, he was this country kind of guy who was learning blues and was a great blues guitar player. And then goes over to Holland on a trip and discovers Peter Bronsman, like sees him playing and then comes back and it's starting to put out some albums at the end of the 60s. And then all of a sudden, it's like blues guitar and this totally whack, you know, part of it that's almost like 
inviting free jazz into Great. it. That's anyway, so um, Mike's a really interesting character. And uh, so that that would be, yeah, that would be a thing, like, right? Just two people and you can get across what you're doing. But uh, anyway, um, I, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> we we're talking about how the, the aesthetics sort of kind of have, have first came together. Thank you. So I, st- I take that music that I had recorded, like I had like seven or eight ideas that didn't make any sense to me. I knew I wasn't going to sing on these things because I had basically run out of words. I was like, I keep saying the same shit. And frankly, it's becoming depressing. And, and I, and I feel like I, my um, um, job to not be a bummer no lyrically like i take i take it as like a responsibility to say something that gives people hope and not just tells them to like go you know you should just go fucking hang yourself now because there's no sense in hanging around so um that's good of you dude (laughs) i'm doing my best here in the basement I i do i do think about others so um so I played that music for Brendan and it made him think of Anthony because he had, he had done some recording with Janelle and Anthony because he had seen them playing around town. Janelle plays cello and Janelle and Anthony are um, not only partners, but um, they had put out a bunch of records. So Brendan had seen Anthony playing other uh, guises where he basically can just cover all these different types of me. He's seen him play like a, um, um, like a rhythm and blues thing that's almost like a bluegrass thing with uh, Danny Gatton's music. And uh, then he saw him play like a surf thing and he saw him play this and that and free jazz and whatever. So he was just kind of like, let's play with Anthony. So the three of us get together and I'm singing this shit of my solo music, which I don't have any intention really of writing any new lyrics, but I'm singing that stuff and we're playing and I'm just like, why are we doing this with this guy on guitar? You know, and then about two weeks later, um, Anthony emails us and is like, would you guys want to be the, my backing band on a record? I'm supposed to record a record of like, and I want to do it more like rock sort of background. Word. We're both just like, yes. So that's how it started. And the longer we played with him, the more time we gave him to go like, look, just take your time with this because the, world that he lives in is like show the people what you're doing and record it mm-hmm. and then move on to the next thing. And if you can get them to tour with you, you're lucky. Right. And that's about it. So basically we just kept going, like just take, take more time to let's, you can, you know, this would sound that much better if you do that. And what if you do that? And then we just turned into a band. Sick. And you guys were, uh, the aesthetics were originally going to, record for John Zorn's label. Is that correct? Well, that, that was supposedly the, the, the thing that was on the table that it made Anthony do that. And then it just started to turn into like, it, I don't know. It just wasn't his solo project anymore. And then it wasn't going to make sense for that. Yeah. Just being familiar with some of the stuff that John Zorn puts out, which is insane. And just like, I was like, wow, how does that fit in? Like I try to imagine the first Mesthetics record on his label and, my brain was yeah, maybe it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have been a record that he rejected. So, sure. and um, and Ian saw us play. Our first show was at the Galaxy Hut, which is literally a bar. You walk in the door, and we would be standing right there playing. And then you walked 
six more feet, you'd bump into the bar. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was like that. We're, we played that first show in that room, which was pretty amazing because Brendan and I realized that we hadn't played together in 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So we played together for 15 years in Fugazi, and then we didn't play together for 15 years. Almost, you know, literally. It was there was a month's difference of 15 years. I don't know how many months. And then we were playing that show. And I believe me, my body recognized that it was about to play with Brendan. And I was <laughs> kind of worried about where some of those songs might go in speed wise. And then just before we played, I was like, Oh shit. Like I remember physically, I remember this feeling and it went from my fucking toes to the top of my head. And then basically they could have done anything and I could have played fast enough. That's so sick. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I saw, I saw you, um, Mesthetics play in Portland, um, Maine. I think maybe it was the first tour you did. And I was not really prepared for the level of like sonic blast that like my, like I remember leaving that show just, just being like, kind of confused like what just happened uh it was amazing good <laughs> um that to temper that last statement the last show we did was in someone's basement where they have dinner and then you sit in seats in the basement and i basically was just you know one of those shows where as we say we are trapped in our body oh yeah and so that would be the exact opposite of that but you have to you have to make sure that people understand that you have your feet on the ground and that doesn't happen all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, that's really, you know, we started to play together um, probably in 2015. Okay. Um, so that's when I came back from Italy. So that probably didn't take more than a month of being home where Ian was like, why don't you just come over and see what you can do with me and Amy? Because we've been, we've had different bass players come by. And when I lived in Italy, we talked about, um, playing and would say, you know, I wish you were around and we could play, you know? And, um, and so that happened when I, when I came back, I just started going to their house and basically we would meet before our kids went to school. So we would, we would meet at like eight 30 in the morning and play for an hour or an hour and a half till everyone's day started. And we were doing that like almost three days a week. Oh, that's sick. And there was three years of that before we played our first show. Wow. Wow. That's cool. 
try and figure that one out. That is yeah. the most rehearsed I will ever be for. <laughs> I, I literally, we played a church in DC um, and I was like, the place filled up and I got this feeling of like, shit, do I know these songs? <laughs> and then we got on stage and I was like, I will never know songs like I know these songs ever again. Will I be this rehearsed? I, that that's their dog. Oh yeah, uh, I thought it was our dog. Um, can I ask one question? Sure. Uh, sure. Speaking of that, um, you guys didn't use a set list, right? With Fugazi, really? We didn't. No. So how did you fucking have all your stuff ready to go? How did you know what to practice, or even like? You guys were just so tight at that point. We would go before we would go on tour. We would have at least a week of practicing that could be like three, three hours, at least a practice, like three times or four times before we'd go and practice where we would systematically go through every album we had recorded up until that point. Wow. So as the, you know, as the band got older, there was more stuff to rehearse. That's what I mean. So it's like you had to be ready to that's so insane man it was pretty much like that but there were there were just a couple of songs that we were not going to play and then there was some there were some intuitive things that started to take place about songs that were ending that you would know the song that was coming next and there were um things that you didn't understand why you understood and then you would all play them um and basically they all those sets would start by us deciding what the first maybe three songs were like whoever starts Ian or Guy you'd say Ian does this song and then Guy's going to do that song and then Ian does that song and we're off perfect yeah great that gives an intro into the first two songs they would do uh, do you have any preference working with other musicians on songs that you wrote or collaborating more in a band setting or do you feel like it's just like flexing different muscles or yeah, I mean, if you can make anything work, it's great. <laughs> it's, you know, you start to, the longer, to me, the longer I've done this, the more I actually know someone that I can get something done with, it's, you realize how important that is, you know. Um, that being said, I definitely am more, uh, there's, there's a saxophone player I learned about when I was in Italy, and I would have never thought this way in the past, but um I contacted her to do an interview because I was asked to write an article and uh, she, her name is Virginia Genta and she's a saxophone player who plays free jazz with her partner, David uh, Mon, shit, is his name Monzon or Von Zon, M-A-N-Z-A-N. Um, but they're called Juklo Duo, J-O-O-K-L-O -O Duo. And they, are totally out there and just fucking blast through um, a set of music that they don't know what they're doing before they do it. They do what free jazz players do when right. they play, which is a commitment to the moment. And I, after talking with her and interviewing her, I um, sent her some music and said, I've been doing this stuff that I don't understand. Would you be interested in putting some saxophone on it? And she said, she, she emailed back and said, I don't record on pre-recorded music. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for asking, yeah. but yeah. you can come up to where we live and record with us. Dope. Yeah. I was like, fuck, because <laughs> I couldn't take like, you know, a six hour train 
and then just spend a couple of days recording with somebody and tell my family to just, you know, fuck off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's just, you know, where, where I'm at. So right. I just couldn't do that, but boy, did I want to do that. You know, I also got an offer from Carla Buzelich to just go North because she was in Italy and going like, you're in Italy, aren't you? Would you come up? And, and I was just like, I can't leave. I have yeah. to be a good, responsible family member. <laughs> so it just, I just couldn't do that. But how nice. Anyway, over time, I've realized the only way I'm ever going to play with this duo that I think is so cool is if they do play in my hometown to basically just go to show up with my bass. Fuck yeah. And we do this tonight. Yep. Nice. <laughs> I swear to God that they would just go like, sure, just play if you want. Yeah. You know, they Joe, don't, just don't give a shit, you right, know. Right. Joe, but they're okay. super badass. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, yeah, we'll be sure to check those out. Check them out. Um, if we were to take like a snapshot of your record collection, either physical or digital or whatever, could you just like name drop a couple of things like, like this is what is a good representation of like my, my music, you know? Yeah. My, my LP and CD, you know, um, collections kind of just sort of stop. Sure. And I, and I just couldn't be a person who spent, uh, continuously spent money on collecting. Um, although once I started to teach, I realized I had to have a streaming service because I just had to be able to access music like that mm -hmm. and play something somebody wanted to talk about or whatever, right. that it was helpful to do that. So it's part of what I teaching, I pay for that shit, although it's fucked up and I don't think they pay anyone properly, but yeah. what can you do? I don't know where we're at. So can we plug um, your bass lessons by the, by any chance? Like, can we, can you, can yeah, we, I do, can you tell people I do. how to reach you? Yeah, they can just, they can reach me through my um, Facebook or um, Instagram site. And those you can hopefully find on Facebook or Instagram. Um, I don't know if I can spit them out. My, we'll uh, find some, I, we'll I find a, the links. I got it right here. Uh, we'll put the links <laughs> up for you. We'll find links that you can put up because they, I did yeah. just kind of advertise, so it should be floating around there. Yeah. Cool. Joe, Joe Lally 898 on Instagram. And I think you just search for Joe Lally on Facebook and yeah. you'll find them. And we'll put the physical links up cool um it's um yeah it's i mean right now i'm i'm what i'm starting to do is gather playlists of people i like i, do, I don't really like um playlists that are filled i don't put them on on um random very often that doesn't really happen mm -hmm. i listen to records i still do that curate yeah so i have like i have like an alice coltrane playlist that is just literally a pile of Alice Coltrane records. I have an Air, um, Errol Garner is a, I just read the Jay Dillo book. So it started to talk about people, you know, and time. And it went back to like, people have always fucked with time. For example, Errol Garner. But that <laughs> made me realize that, and I had heard Errol Garner before, but then I fucking started listening. I was like, shit, you know, I love that guy. And, um, but I, but, you know, I, I have like playlists like that of Horace Silver and, um, you know, Sun Ra and, um, you know, specifically, I just get into artists like Pharaoh Sanders and Archie Shep. And then I'll just have like this whole thing of Ornette Coleman and, you know, it, it just get it just gets into these different facets of, of things. And so anyway, um, 
that was really interesting reading the Jay Dilla thing because I realized that my relationship with um, time is what makes you know any musician um, interesting. And I really came upon that first because of an obsession with Hendrix and Ian would have all these bootlegs. Him and Henry had tons of fucking Hendrix bootlegs and you just don't listen to the, you know, the three records he made. You listen to this show and that show and that show and that show. It's probably like the dead or something, but he's exploring like a jazz musician every night differently, a number of songs of his or covers that he can just stretch out into these explorations. Right. And after a while, you just go like, I mean, I did. I discovered that through Hendrix and just went like, there's nothing else like that. That's why you get addicted to it. It's Hendrix time. (laughs) Hendrix time. And that's the name of the, the name of the book is Dilla time. Okay. Yeah. So it's really weird that I, I just now thought of that because that's the way I thought about the Hendrix thing and then I realized but that's in it took a while to figure out and then I was like oh so that's when you're listening to a lot of James Brown you're discovering what is working for him and that's his sense of tempo and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk and you hear everyone do it as they compose music they have their particular relationship with time time comes out in the way they present it you know because it is fucking with linear time, which is a construct of thought. It doesn't really exist. Right. Just so anyway. heavy, dude. Yeah, this is going to take some physics, so that's a whole other Joe, I got one last thing. It's not really a question, but when uh, when I saw the aesthetics play in, in Portland, Maine at Space Gallery, I think it was 2018, um, you got on the mic before the before you guys started playing. You said something along the lines of like in the political climate that this country is experiencing, it seems like uh, a world of non-white intolerance is trying to be created, and, and that's not a world that you want to know or live in. Um, yes, as a non-white person, I am I am Mexican. Uh, I like to go to shows. I currently live in a very white corner of the world in New England, but uh, that really really resonated with me, and I just wanted to take a moment and thank you for saying that, and thank you for your time today. Sure. I don't think I, uh, that I could possibly say enough. And I think it's actually a difficult thing to talk about as a white person, but I am a second generation American. So I've thought about it a lot throughout my life because my father's parents came over from Ireland, his mother as an indentured servant because his, her father remarried. So it literally it was like, okay, fuck that family. You and the other daughter just get on a boat and go to America and fuck off out of my life. Mm. So they came over and were, she was a chambermaid in, uh, you know, D.C. And that's where she met the chauffeur, my uh, father's father. And then they moved to New York, et cetera, et cetera. But my mother's parents came over from Italy. And it is something, having gotten into, you know, what is essentially black American music as a kid without any, you know, black people being a part of my life. I was completely aware of that. And it has bothered me to this day and is part of what led me to the punk mentality of thinking that there is something wrong with this society the way it's set up it is not good for us and we're headed into a bad place and as a 60 year old i'm going to turn 60 this year i can only look back and go i was right when i was a kid and it wasn't me and i'm glad i didn't fucking overdose on drugs 
because that's the way it gets internalized. Oh, it's me. Right. And it's, I just can't fucking get along. And that's why, you know, I'm not going to go to any of my high school reunions. I used to think you should just, you know, you should go to the one. It'd be kind of cool to see people. And I was like, you know, maybe the reason all of that felt so wrong is because, you know, it's probably still fucked up and it's probably <laughs> not good to be around most of those. There's probably people I'd love to see. And then there's probably just a bunch, you know, some of those people voted for Trump and it's oh, like, I, I had to, yeah, I don't even want to know. I just, I don't want to know. So uh, maybe you just should realize that you are, you know, the faggot everyone said you were and just give up with that <laughs> and just go, you know, and just arrange the world the way you see it. It's the Sun Ra thing where you you need to just create your own mythology about the way th- that things are that the way they are. And it's white people's it's white people's insecurity about themselves that led them to start thinking about how to organize the narrative about the world where um, the inferior, those who are not white are the inferior because, but it had to be written down and it had to be sent out to people because it's clear that the people that they had been oppressing could have everything going against them and still get on the GI bill to get educated learn music and become a master on the level of Verdi, Bach, or, you know, Telemann or anyone, all the jazz guys proved. Well, clearly we actually turn out to be an exceptionally Mm. superior. (laughs) Right. Right. So fuck you all. If you're not already familiar with the body of work that Joe has been part of producing, I highly recommend checking out all of these bands. Fugazi, Ataxia, The Black Sea, Decahedron, Koriki, Joe Lally's solo albums, as well as The Mesthetics, who will be touring the West and East Coast with James Brandon Lewis Trio, starting February 22nd in San Diego, California. For complete tour details, go to discord.com slash tours i highly recommend seeing them maybe i'll see you out there looking at you kingston new york until next time this has been collapse out playing us out is the aesthetics with crowds and power Out has been produced and co-hosted by Jason, Eric, and Leo. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell a friend. Help us get the word out. Reach out to us. We'll give you a shout out. Find us on social media at Collapse Out Podcast. To check out playlists that we create to accompany most episodes, go to spotify.com slash user slash Leo dot Coronado 5.